0: We are continuing to make our way through the book of Hebrews, looking at how Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets who spoke of him. He's better than the angels who worship him, better than Moses and Joshua and the priesthood of Aaron that all points to him. Remember, Jesus said he didn't come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. Everything finds its fullness in Christ. And as we've seen, he is the great high priest who has ascended into the heavenly place and is seated at God's right hand forever. Last week, we heard the introduction for this argument of Jesus being a greater high priest, greater than those of the line of Aaron, because Jesus is from a greater line, from the order of Melchizedek. Who we saw was a, a priest king of Jerusalem who, who predated and postdated the law, the one who Abram gave his tithe to, and then was given bread and wine and blessing. And this morning we'll see that argument developed why exactly Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. So let's read the first uh, half of this section here, starting in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So we can see right away a continuation of this theme. Jesus is better. And in light of his reflection on Genesis 14, the whole scene with Abram and Melchizedek in the previous verses, The author is now going to lay out how the priesthood of Jesus is far better than the ministry of the Levitical priests. Now we need to have a uh, a baseline understanding of the law for this stuff to really click. So let me say a couple things about the Levitical priesthood and the law in general. Because the author says a few things that make it seem like the law and the priesthood was a mistake. It, It was worthless and a waste of time. That's not how God operates. He is perfectly intentional in all that he does, and he would not have given the law if it didn't serve a good purpose. St. Paul lays out that purpose in Romans chapter 7 by telling us that the law reveals to people their sin, right? It it serves as a mirror or a, a measuring stick, and by looking at it, we can know how far we fall short, and it should humble us, It should show us the cost of our sin. This was evident daily in the Levitical system where animal sacrifices were made for sin, like we saw in our reading, showing the people that sin is so serious it must be punished. And that punishment was death, but only by God's mercy was a person not punished, an animal suffered on their behalf. And also through the law, seeing our sin should show us that that we need help. Right When we see our sin for what it is, we are led to a state of, of hopelessness in, in our own ability to solve the problem of sin. We need someone else, which points to the key negative of the law. It, it makes nothing perfect. It cannot permanently solve the problem of sin and, and bring anyone freely and fully into the presence of God. And this is what the author is getting at in this first section. If the law had been able to make people perfect, and perfect in the sense of, of completeness, right, bringing them fully cleansed into the presence of God, then, then there would be no need for a priest to come as prophesied by David in Psalm 110, which the author has already quoted and will quote again here. Remember that the Christians the author is writing to were considering going back. They were were tempted to return to their old ways of, of ritual and worship. But if perfection or completeness could be found there, then David wouldn't have prophesied about another kind of priest. If perfection could be found in the Levitical system, there would be no need for a new law and a new priest, which would make David and God a liar. But God is not a liar, and there was a need for another priest to rise up after the order of Melchizedek, after the priest king of righteousness and peace, a perfect, indestructible, everlasting priest, a holy, innocent, unstained high priest, one that could make his people perfect. Previously in the letter, the author pointed to the perfecting of of Christ through suffering and his heavenly exaltation. And now this perfection is applied to us as Christians. Because Jesus is perfect, this means that perfection is the goal of the priesthood of the church. The goal is to be complete or whole, completely fulfilled in the presence of God. God. This couldn't be accomplished through the old priesthood, but through Christ, we are being perfected as he is perfect. That's his business. That's what he does. That's what his high priesthood is all about. As we'll see in a few verses, Jesus' death has paid for all our debt. And in God's presence, his resurrected body sits as, an e- as intermediating proof of that payment. And he prays for us. But what does me- being made perfect look like for us? When we confess and repent of our sins, forgiveness is offered to us by God through Jesus. Jesus. Confession, forgiveness, repentance are all critical means by which God perfects imperfect people and draws them toward himself. But if we're not in the habit of confessing our sins, if we don't properly understand God's almighty glory and our filthy sin, if we don't see our need for a high priest, then all of this means nothing. We'll come back to that. What the author is saying here in the first few verses is that the priesthood needed to change because it couldn't fulfill its ultimate purpose. And the priesthood has changed with Jesus. He says in verse 12 that when there is a change in the priesthood, there is a change in the law. And this change in the law isn't primarily a a change to its moral or ethical dimension, but rather as the sacrificial system by which the whole of God's people were to to relate to him and draw near to him and and be sustained by uh, by his holiness as his distinct people. The change occurs in that sin is perfectly and permanently dealt with and God is made freely and fully accessible through Christ. Who doesn't come from the corrupted and ineffective line of Aaron under the law of Moses. His priesthood is not based on any legal or biological requirement, but by the power of an indestructible life. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, this indestructible life is the anchor of the soul that we read about in chapter six. The the eternal life of Jesus that is our unbreakable hope gone before us into the presence of God the Father. See, the priesthood of Jesus was fully realized in his heavenly exaltation and enthronement. The Son of God, who exists eternally, was born a man, suffered and died for us, and through resurrection and ascension has entered the heavenly sanctuary as the priest foretold in Psalm 110. Which is quoted here, again, to to keep you know, feeding us the solid food. Verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So this is why I gave a, a preamble about the law. The author uses the word useless here which can make it seem like, like the Old Testament law and priesthood was, was a plan A, worthless mistake, so God enacted plan B with Jesus. That's not what he's saying. It's the same argument he's been making all along, right? Angels aren't bad. The prophets weren't bad. Moses and Joshua and the priesthood and the law were not bad, but relative to Jesus and what he has accomplished, they are Useless in the sense that they couldn't accomplish what was ultimately needed, which was accomplished through Christ. God would not have made the promise through David in Psalm 110 if the priesthood he initiated through Moses was his ultimate intention for his people. God gave the law, and He was entitled to give it as a means of a purification and sanctification that would be fulfilled in His Son, who is a better hope through which we draw near to God. And this better hope is a present hope, right? It's not just wishful thinking about the future. The present hope. We have of drawing near to God with confidence is the hope of sharing forever in God's unshakable kingdom. Now, we have free access to the almighty creator of the universe because of Jesus. So we're seeing a contrast between the the limited effectiveness of the former priesthood and the absolute, perfect, permanent effectiveness of the priesthood of Jesus. And it's not without an oath, right? Verse 20. It was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The superiority of of Christ's priesthood is secured by the means of a divine oath. And this divine oath from God that the priesthood of Christ would last forever gives us confidence and hope. Because God does not lie. This was true, it is true, and it will be true forever. You are a priest forever. This could never be said of any priest in the line of Aaron who all died, right? Verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. None of those from the line of Aaron had the power of an endless life, right? Or or the power to restore life and to ascend to God's right hand, to live forever as humanity's priest. But Jesus has that power. He has an unchangeable priesthood. Jesus will never die and be replaced by the next in line don't need to worry about Jesus being replaced. You can't cancel Jesus. You are a priest forever. God has said it, and his word is completely trustworthy forever. And, and the emphasis here is not simply on the longevity of his priesthood, but that it is unchangeable. It is an indestructible life, an unbreakable anchor our hope. And consequently, because of all this, verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And we're going to camp out here for a few minutes because I believe that the message of this passage hinges on this one verse. Because Jesus holds his priesthood permanently and continually and perfectly forever, because of all this, he is able to save to the uttermost, meaning completely or perfectly, those who draw near to God through him because he intercedes for them. This continues to explain what our better hope is while we know the ultimate promise of our eternal salvation, we look now to the ability of our heavenly high priest to sustain and continually help those who come to God through him. That that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him by his intercession. The foundation of this intercession is the finished nature of Christ's atoning work on the cross. The very presence of the crucified and yet glorified Jesus with God on our behalf is the reality behind his heavenly intercession for us. In the Old Testament, when the high priest entered the holy place on the day of atonement, he would wear on him the names of the people of Israel over his heart, as as a continual memorial before the Lord. Christ, our great high priest, has borne the names of his people before God the Father and, and sat down at his right hand forever to bring to God the prayers that we pray through him. And the merit of his sacrificial death is applied. That is how he saves us. And and with a salvation that's not just realized eternally, right? The the New Testament authors are also insistent about our present salvation. Christ is continually saving those who draw near to God through him. This activity of of saving is not just limited to a a moment of our conversion. The the pioneer of our salvation is, is daily rescuing his people. So we have been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. And so we can hear again the call to not neglect our inheritance. Don't go back. Persevere. In the same way that our salvation is continual, the verb draw near to God Indicates a continuous action, not just a single action in the past. It's not saying God is able to save those who once drew near to Him, those who once prayed a prayer and then called it good, but rather those who go on drawing near to God. But here's the point this continual saving and drawing near isn't possible without a high priest. We were meant to be, we were designed to be in full relationship with God, with free access to his presence, just like Adam and Eve, right? And the the role of the priest all the way back to Adam was was to be one who led or or mediated this this rhythm of entering into the sanctuary, being blessed by God, and, and then being sent back out to bless the world coming into the sanctuary, being sent back out into the world. But as you know, sin broke that rhythm. It, it cut off access, and it needs to be dealt with, which as we've already seen, could not be perfectly or completely or ultimately done by the Levitical priest. The rhythm was mediated, but not fully or perfectly. Thus, we need Jesus. And to have any part in the kingdom of God, to share in Christ, our sin must be dealt with. Yes, Jesus dealt with sin on the cross once for all. Yes, he has victory over the fallenness of all creation. But on this side of eternal salvation, we still sin. And without being cleansed, We have no way of of drawing near to God and taking advantage of our position purchased by Christ. Proper fellowship with God cannot happen with unconfessed sin in our lives. In the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks of two washings. Remember, he's, he's washing the disciples' feet and he comes to Peter and Jesus says that those who have been bathed do not need to wash except for their feet. We can see a reference here to both baptism and, and an ongoing cleansing from sin. In baptism, we come to share in Christ. We are welcomed into his body, his church, and we're ritually purified from sin. We are made clean. But, but what of the ongoing sin committed against God? How is that cleansed? Because we don't just keep getting baptized, right? In ancient times, it was custom that before people went to a feast, they would bathe themselves. So when they arrived at the house, they didn't need to take another bath. They only needed to wash their feet. You know, because no shoes, feces, not good. Foot washing was the ceremony that preceded entry into the house as guests. Let me connect this to what I said earlier about confession and repentance being the means by which God's people are being perfected and drawn into his presence. I want to consider what confession does, especially as we practice weekly corporate confession here. As those who are in Christ, we have been Bathed, We have been cleansed. And and part of the blessing of baptism is this constant reminder that we are clean in Christ. But as we live our lives Monday through Saturday, we inevitably step in sin. Filth that is not appropriate to bring into God's house. So in our liturgy, we hear God's glory declared. We sing of that glory and we are called to enter in, right? And for that, Jesus needs to wash our feet. Which is accomplished through the repentance and forgiveness of our sins. Just as an aside, it, it is breathtaking that we get to draw near to God. But make no mistake, we don't get to draw near to God any other way. I'm not saying that our access is limited to the ritual of the liturgy on Sunday mornings, but it is limited to those who come through the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So corporately, in our liturgy, we ritually reenact Jesus washing our dirty feet, forgiving our sins, and by those means, we share in him. And, And we can lift up our hearts to the Lord, right? We are welcomed up and in, into his glorious presence. As guests to a feast at the Lord's table, we have been made clean. So consider the wonder of freely drawing near to God. Consider the glory of Almighty God telling us to come. Saying, draw near. Draw near to me through through my son, your high priest. Draw near to me. Again, Sunday isn't the only time that this happens. We have continual access to God, but it is especially beautiful as the gathered body of Christ. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, we have our deepest needs met in Christ. We were made in the image of God for God. And we need a high priest to bring us into the all-powerful, all-loving relational presence of God. Jesus is that high priest. So we don't need to hide our sin. We don't need to work to pay off our debt. Thanks be to God. Christ, as our high priest, meets our needs. He is holy, blameless, pure, sinless, exalted above the heavens. He is our holy priest and holy sacrifice. We do not have that in ourselves. Or anything or anyone else? Why would we trust in anything or anyone else to do what he has done and is doing forever? I'm sure your counselor or therapist is wonderful. That that was not sarcasm. I'm sure they are. They cannot clean you up and bring you into the presence of God. Distracting yourself with Netflix or social media or numbing yourself with substances will only distract you from what you truly need and what has already been given to you in Christ. One pastor put it this way, Christ is a substitute for everything, but nothing is a substitute for Christ. Don't trade away the reality of who Christ is and what he has done and is doing as our high priest, as your high priest. And be amazed that through him we have access to God. May we draw ever near to him in every single moment with hope-filled confidence. Draw near to God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, it is no small thing that we are here now in your presence because of the washing and intercession of your Son. Open our eyes to that reality. Thank you for the gift of Jesus, and that by him, we can come to you. Assure us by your Holy Spirit that you want us near. There is nothing that we have done that you cannot forgive. Give us ears to hear your voice that welcomes us and obedient hearts to enter in. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.